Let's open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Our text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 22. That's Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 22. We're continuing our Advent series this morning as we return to see Jesus, our high priest. Now, as a heads up, just so you know, this week serves as a sort of a part one, and next week, Lord willing, we'll have part two as we finish out chapter 7 next week. And we saw last week how Hebrews was written to suffering and persecuted Christians. They were tempted to return to their former way of living, to their lives before Jesus. The thought was, following Jesus is costing me too much. Life is just too hard. My pain is too great. I want to return to my past life where I was a Jew when things were better. The response these Christians got from the author of Hebrews was a word of comfort. But if you remember last week, we saw it wasn't the comfort we might expect. He tells them that the problems of pain and suffering and persecution were not actually their greatest problem. Their greatest problem was their immaturity. Now, he isn't being mean or uncaring. In our therapeutic age, we are perhaps too quick to call someone harsh when they tell us what we don't want to hear, especially when they tell us hard things while we're hurting. But church, it's precisely because these Christians were in such pain that the author felt the need to speak so bluntly to these brothers and sisters. They were in danger of making decisions from a place of pain that would wreck their lives for eternity. So from a place of love, the author comforts these Christians with rebuke and exhortation at different times in his letter. Patiently and carefully, he explains the gospel of Jesus to them again to help them weather the storms of this life with Christ in their hearts. You see, their circumstances of pain caused them to question whether God was actually for them whether he was really a gracious God. For these Christians, or some of them, it seemed like God was not keeping up his end of the bargain because their lives were in shambles. They wanted relief, but what they needed was renewal. They needed to remember Jesus and refocus upon him. They needed to see the emptiness of turning away from him and the fullness of life with him. They needed more of Jesus, not less of him. And the author of Hebrews addresses this need by giving them a deep dive throughout his sermon letter of the superiority of Jesus over everything. He is the better word, the better priest, the better sacrifice. He is the better king. He guarantees a better covenant. He is actually their best life now and for eternity. The author does this with a staggering amount of evidence from the Old Testament throughout this sermon. And perhaps one of the most interesting examples of that is is our text. So let's read Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 22. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. 
And then is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one, than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in order for these Christians to be comforted, they needed to be reminded that Jesus is superior. That Jesus is better in every way. And the way our author goes about accomplishing his goal is to go back to the Old Testament and to carefully and effectively dismantle any notion that there is hope in the Old Covenant. That there is hope left in the priesthood of Levi and the law of Moses. He uses the Scriptures to bolster the faith of these hurting Christians by dismantling an empty hope in the Old Covenant. You know, as I was reflecting on this text and studying it this week, it's striking to me again that the remedy the author of this letter gives to his people is deep exposition of Scripture in the midst of their crisis. 
it seems to me to be really counterproductive because I tend towards worldly thinking. I tend to think, what good is preaching when the world is crashing down around these saints? But there's something in what the author of Hebrews does as he comforts these Christians that reminded me of the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Moses said, and he, that is the Lord, humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, friends, in the wilderness, it was the promises of God that were more real than the food they gathered every day from the ground. Likewise, it can seem to us that in the midst of crisis or in the midst of pain or suffering or persecution, that our assessment of what we most need is very practical. I just need a bit more money. I just need a bit better health. I just need a bit more stability in my life. I just need a little bit less conflict with everyone. But I think if we would listen to the author of Hebrews, what we actually need is a stronger grip on truth a more robust reliance on the promises of our God. The author gives this church truth from Scripture that if they would hear and believe it, it would actually stabilize their hearts in the midst of great difficulty. Which makes this text so rich for us too. I mean, who doesn't want to have stability in a world that seems to be burning down around us? And yet, sometimes we read the Bible as if it were some sort of instruction manual. Rules for how we are, ought to live that we can run to and kind of flip through some pages and find answers to our problems, but that loses the reality of what the Scriptures actually are. The Bible is a story. It's God's story. It's a story that we are a part of, and God's story defines our story. Our author helps us learn how to use the scriptures in our own lives as he recounts a story from the Old Testament and shows how that story of Melchizedek reshapes the story of these suffering Christians. He shows us and them that the Bible is not a book of rules for everyday living, but the revelation of a God who invites us to know him through his son. So instead of moving through a structured outline this morning with points 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, we're going to walk through his argument, because I think if we will walk with the author of Hebrews, we feel the tension of what he is trying to communicate a bit better. And he's Hebrew. He doesn't think in linear thought like North American people who like structured steps and everything. So let's, let's, let's listen to him on his terms. So last week, if you remember at the end of our text, we saw him mention Melchizedek. And he mentions him as the source of Jesus' priesthood. And if you read maybe the text in between our sermon text last week and our text for this morning, chapter 6, he moves to Abraham in chapter 6, pointing out that Abraham was the patriarch to whom God made the covenant promises of a nation that would be called Israel. So the author of Hebrews talks about Melchizedek, and then he backtracks to lay some foundation about this first patriarch, and he's doing it as a strategic move that he's going to build on. Because 
when he builds their, their thoughts around this guy, Abraham, that they know. They know a great deal about him. He's going to draw their attention to an Old Testament figure who occupies a tiny section of the book of Genesis. This guy named Melchizedek. Melchizedek steps on the scene for us in Genesis chapter 14. But the author of Hebrews summarizes this moment in verses 1 and 2. Look at those verses again. He says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. So let's grab some context from Genesis. So if you remember, God calls Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham, he calls him to leave his homeland and to go to the land that the Lord will give him. Abram takes Sarai, his wife, later Sarah, and his nephew named Lot. Abram grows in wealth and livestock, and as does his nephew Lot. And there's a point where there's a rift that's forming between them. There's a conflict between Lot and Abram. In order to keep peace, Abram suggests, let's separate. Lot chooses to go and set up camp in a place called Sodom. Abram goes the opposite direction. Now, a group of kings, including the king of Sodom, are attacked by another group of kings. This is not shocking in this time of world history. And Lot is captured and taken hostage. So we read in Genesis 14, verses 14 through 16, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abram goes out, is victorious, and when he returns victorious, there's this moment. He's met by the king of Sodom, one of the defeated kings, and by this guy, Melchizedek. Look at verse 18 of Genesis, Genesis 14, 18, excuse me. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That event... That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about. That's what he's unpacking for these Christians. He unpacks just how meaningful this, this seemingly insignificant exchange from Genesis actually is for them. I mean, if you're reading Genesis and your devotions, maybe you'll start that in the coming new year reading through the Bible, you are likely paying the most attention to whom in that text? Abram. You're not necessarily memorizing names like Ketterlomer. Like no one really is looking at that guy. But we're looking at Abraham, the father of the people of God, the nation of Israel. You're, you're probably just not too concerned about some weird priest from a place called Salem named Melchizedek. 
Why tell this story from Genesis? Because, friends, the author of Hebrews wants these suffering Christians to know that the priesthood of Melchizedek was actually a signpost to Jesus' priesthood. So the author starts carefully drawing connections for them from this event. You first, he just uses his name. Verse 2 of our text, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek, the name, means, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem. Salem meaning peace. That is king of peace. His names and his title point beyond himself to the one who would come after him. I mean, the author of Hebrews actually says the author says he is what his name means. He is what his position means. But then he says he was a type of what was to come. Look at verse 3. He goes on to say, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Because there is no record given to us in Genesis of Melchizedek's heritage or his origins, nothing outside of his name in this event, the author shows he resembles Jesus. Now, it's important to address one common misunderstanding. Some have concluded that Melchizedek is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. That's wrong. Melchizedek is Melchizedek. Jesus is Jesus. The point the author of Hebrews is making is that Melchizedek wasn't a priest because of his bloodline. That's the big point he's trying to make here. He's not a priest because of his familial heritage, but rather he was appointed by God. He is contrasting Melchizedek's priesthood with what came later, what we know from Aaron and Levi and the Levitical priesthood. I mean, the author is actually driving into a reality that you and I see all the time. We often see someone who has a position based on their family connections or their roots. I mean, haven't you said at some point, he only got that position because who his dad is? She's only famous because of what her family's done. We see this all the time. Having a place of position based on your heritage is common. It can be very annoying to us because many times children just don't live up to their parents' legacy. And the picture the author is painting is that it's not that Jesus' lineage doesn't matter. It actually does matter, but it doesn't matter in the way that these Christians are concerned that it matters. They are thinking... And perhaps, reality, they, are, they might be even being told this by people, that Jesus isn't a real priest. He didn't come from the right family. Everybody knows priests are from Aaron and Levi. He cannot be the great high priest. These Christians are lying to you. He didn't have the right parents. He didn't come from appropriate descent. And he's going to dig into that with meticulous detail. Maybe you heard him doing that in the text. But Melchizedek who is a king and a priest of the Most High God, resembles the very Son of God. Now, he is not eternal. He was a man of flesh and blood, but the way he is revealed in Scriptures is what the author of Hebrews is zeroing in here. The way he is revealed points to a priest who did, who did have flesh and yet was eternal, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then he kind of starts to build the argument. So he's starting to establish that this Melchizedek resembles the one who is to come, the one we know is the Jesus. And then he starts to point out that Melchizedek is actually greater than Abraham. Now, if you're a Jewish person in this room or a former Jew has come to, to Christ, this is one of those things that makes your armpit sweat when someone starts saying this stuff. Whoa, 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 whoa. This no-name guy is better than... You can, you can feel the tension. He's... Using Melchizedek, he's going to show he's greater than Abraham. And he does it through this one specific event. He says, Abraham paid tithes to the priest, Melchizedek. And then Melchizedek turns and pronounces a blessing on Abraham. And he does it in the name of Yahweh, the Most High God. Now see what's happening here. Melchizedek is a special priest. He's a royal king priest. But Abraham, and the author of Hebrews is pointing this out, but Abraham is the one who actually has the promises of God, right? He's the one to whom God has said, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Should Abraham, in any setting, pay homage to or bow down to this Melchizedek? That's the question the author of Hebrews is putting in the hearts and minds of these Christians. Abraham submits to this priest king, giving tithes to Melchizedek. And this priest king, in turn, blesses Abraham. This seems so odd that the greatest patriarch, the earthly father of the people of Israel, would bow to a priest that we have no prior knowledge of. But what is plain from the text that we even read from Genesis is that Abram, Abraham knew Melchizedek was a king, but more importantly, he knew that he was a priest of the Most High God. The same true God who had made the promises to him, and because Abraham was a Yahweh worshiper, he worshiped God through offerings to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek, the priest of Yahweh, the Most High God, confers a blessing from God on Abraham. And what the author of Hebrews is doing is saying, hey, hey, the lesser honors the greater, and the greater blesses the lesser. That's what he even says in the text. So in essence, Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to any priesthood that would come later in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. If they were sweating before, they could be even angry at the author of Hebrews now. I mean, he's painting a picture here. Let's get back to this audience. Let's think about the audience of this letter. These persecuted and suffering Christians, they're hurting. They want to go back. They want to just go when it was easier. And this guy is telling them that they can't, that there's nothing for them. In fact, there's no hope there. They're beginning to consider that maybe Jesus was a fraud. Maybe Jesus can't be trusted. Maybe we've made a mistake in trusting Jesus. Maybe we've been bamboozled and need to go back to our roots of being Jewish and living according to the Old Covenant. But the author is showing them how the Old Covenant itself always pointed to a greater priest who would come. 
the safe haven that they were thinking about running to, the refuge they were considering going to, was actually no escape from Jesus at all. Because every detail, every promise, every seemingly obscure event points in some way to the coming Messiah priest who is Jesus. He's proving Jesus is true from the pages of the Old Covenant. In verse 9 and 10, he takes that family heritage question and looks at it in a different way. There's no record of Melchizedek's family tree, but there is record of Levi's. Levi's family tree goes back to Abraham. So the author is making the case that in Abraham, honoring and tithing to the priesthood of Melchizedek, the whole Old Testament to come later was submitting to the superior priesthood of Melchizedek. Levi was descended from Abraham, and if Abram, Abraham submitted to Melchizedek, honored Melchizedek, then all the descendants who would come after him were doing the same thing because they're from him. Now, this isn't a strange argument in the Bible. We are descended from Adam and Eve, who sinned in the Garden of Eden, and each of us inherit their sin and their sin nature as their offspring. Repeatedly, the scriptures speak of the sins of the fathers being visited upon the children. Let's be honest. We hate that reality. We don't like it. We're American. We're self-made. We're do-it-yourselfers. We can't be held accountable for anything anyone else does. Parents, grandparents, friends and family, they made their own choices. I'm responsible for me. Yet the Bible has a category for generational and national guilt, just as it does for generational and national blessing. We don't like the guilt. We sure do love the blessing. And the author of Hebrews uses this generational argument of proof as proof that Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to anything that would come after it because Abram honored him and was blessed by him. He doesn't stop. He goes farther. He drops a bombshell of his argument in verse 11. Look at that verse again. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Those verses expose two big realities. First, he calls a spade a spade. The perfection which the law requires to be right with God was never found in the old covenant sacrifices was never found in the priesthood. Second, he points out that there had been a prophecy of another priesthood superior to the Levitical priesthood all along. And those two realities are of eternal significance to these Christians, and they're of eternal significance to us too. 
They're eternally significant to every human being who's ever walked the earth. So let's start with the first. The reality is that we all face wickedness and evil. We see that it really does exist. No one has to, you're not going home today and thinking, you know, the world is just perfect. There's nothing wrong anywhere. Like those people are locked up in institutions because the rest of us know that the world is broken. It's flawed. It's not like it should be. Every human, believer or not, knows this reality. The Bible actually shows us how the world got this way through the sin of Adam and Eve, and that every human descended from Adam is a sinner by nature and by choice. The world is evil because we're in it. Our sin has placed us not only in a predicament of an evil world, but it's placed us outside the very presence of the God who made us. Just like Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden, our sin makes us unwelcome in the presence of the one true and living God. Yet, that's a great word, yet or but, whatever adversative particle we want to put in there, but. Instead of leaving humanity to die in wickedness, the Lord enacted a plan of redemption to redeem his people that we might be welcomed back into his presence. And building through the Old Testament in the priesthood, the tabernacle, the temple of the Lord, the bedrock is laid for the one who would come, who would bring perfection that people need in order to be brought back into the Eden of God's presence for all eternity. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the promised one who came. He fulfilled the law and brought his perfect righteousness to people who can receive his perfection by faith. That's what we call justification. We are justified by faith in Jesus. I try to teach my kids what justification means. So kiddos, I'm going to teach you something here. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's not mine, but I'm not really sure who said it. But it's a good one. That's what the author's pointing to. Jesus completed the work that the Levitical priesthood could never do. The second thing, in verses 14 through 17, the author just goes ahead and addresses the elephant in the room. Probably the most pressing question that's rattling around in the minds of these these suffering Christians. Jesus didn't descend from a priestly line. How can he be a priest who is not a priest according to God's own word? Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. He goes at their best argument. Yeah, Jesus is from Judah, and we all know, hey, Moses didn't say anything about priests coming from Judah. Yet what is also true is that there was a prophecy of another priestly line rooted in a man named Melchizedek who came before Aaron and Levi. This is why he quotes Psalm 110 multiple times in this sermon. A second time in verse 17, for it is witnessed witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So these Christians who are scared, they're in pain, they're being mistreated, their life is a wreck, are looking at the old covenant priesthood and thinking, I'm just going to go back there. That's the safe haven I'm going to go to. 
And yet that old priesthood had been done away with through the forever priest, Jesus, who came as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, the priest king who is superior to the old covenant. He rules over the priesthood without rival. And it's interesting to note, think about this, friends. The priesthood of Aaron and Levi, how did that begin? Because God said this was where the priests would come from. God appointed. The priesthood of Aaron and Levi began by God's appointment. God instituted the priesthood by his own action. The priesthood was rooted in God's authority first and secondarily in family heritage, not the other way around. So Melchizedek was appointed a priest by God before Aaron and Levi. And Jesus is appointed a priest because God has appointed him to do so, not because he was born of the tribe of Levi, but because he was born of a virgin Mary appointed to be the high priest by God himself. See, the author is taking these Christians all the way back to the roots, the roots that they think are safe. He wants to go all the way back, the very roots that they're going to think, this will give me life. If I go back to this, it'll give me life. And then he shows them that the roots of the Old Testament pointed to a righteous branch of Jesse, descended from David, the vine, who would say to his disciples, abide in me and you will bear fruit. I will give you life. The roots that they were looking at pointed them to Jesus. They just needed to see the connection. The Old Testament pointed to life in Jesus, not apart from him. And now we begin to see the picture crystallize. This oasis in the midst of their pain that they were running to was no oasis at all. There was no relief to be found in the Old Covenant because Jesus had come and the Old Covenant was obsolete. And then the author points out, I don't know if you caught it, he uses the word better twice in our text and he points out two ways Jesus is better. First, Jesus is the better verse 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The author of Hebrews uses forceful language. The law was fulfilled and rendered useless for gaining hope before God. There's no back door to heaven through the old covenant. We know that from the gospel of John, friends, don't we? We've we've been in John 14 just mere weeks ago. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The hope they were tempted to turn back to was no hope at all. Jesus was the only hope they needed, and he was the better hope than anything they'd had previously. What about you? What are you hoping in for, for comfort? What circumstance in your life or milestone that you're looking, are you looking at and saying, if I can only get there, if I can have that, if I, if I could just feel that way, then I would be secure. Beloved, there is no real security apart from Jesus. Apart from Jesus, there is only suffering here in this life and then eternal suffering. But in Jesus, we have a better hope for this life and for the next. 
We know because of our great high priest that though we may taste pain, loss, and difficulty here in this life, we will be in his presence for eternity where the pain of this life will seem, as the Apostle Paul said, to be light, momentary affliction. Why would we trade an eternity in the presence of God and glory and might for the vapor of temporary joy in this life? Setting our eyes on temporary relief is not real relief. Beloved, Jesus is our better hope. To turn back or turn away from Christ is to give up the one who is our hope. But there's another way the author of Hebrews points out that Jesus is better. Jesus guarantees a better covenant. Look again at verses 20 and 20, 20 through 22. And it was not without an oath, and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Because of who he is, sent by the Father, the eternal Son of God, Jesus, is the guarantor of a better covenant that he himself instituted. The temptation to think that the old ways were better, that the old covenant was where they needed to get back to, was not only to abandon Jesus, but ultimately it was to abandon the one they claimed to be going to, the Lord God. The Father appointed the Son, and the Son accomplished the plan to bring a new and better covenant. This covenant, not made with the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus, would reach the lost sheep of Israel. But in shocking wonder and glory, it would reach even to the Gentiles and then to every tribe, tongue, and nation. This new covenant is a better covenant because it has the better priest, the better promises, the better blessings, the better life for here and all eternity. But who guarantees that this covenant is true? What assurance can these hurting Christians have that their faith is not in vain? The guarantee is the one who brought the covenant to pass himself. The very priest that was promised in every line of the old covenant, in every bloody sacrifice on the altar, in every scapegoat chased out of the city, in every temple service, he is the guarantee. He is the better priest that to think of going back would be to ruin themselves because his covenant is not only the better covenant, it's the only covenant. So let me ask you, let's bring this home, this detailed thing we've looked at. Are you feeling drawn away from Jesus? Are you feeling pulled away from him? Are you tempted to think maybe my life would be better without him? Maybe life would just be easier without Jesus. Now, you may not feel a temptation to return to sacrificing on an altar in a temple in Jerusalem. But I wonder, are you tempted to bow to some other priest who will give you the promises you want? Will you go to the priests of wealth and ask them to give you security that Jesus won't give? Will you go to the priests of pleasure and ask them to satisfy the longings that Jesus doesn't? Will you go to the priests of children 
and ask them to be your joy and hope for the future, to guarantee a better life for you that Jesus hasn't promised? Will you go to the priests of politics and ask them to build back a better nation that is great again to guarantee your rights that Jesus doesn't seem overly concerned about? Will you go to the priests of anger and ask them to fuel your rage against the LGBTQ activists and gun control lobbyists because Jesus welcomes those sinners and oppressors into his kingdom and gives them grace? Will you go to the priests of ease and laziness and ask them to lighten your load because Jesus just seems to ask so much of you? Will you go to the priests of materialism and ask them to give you the things that others have so that you can possess more or at least just as much because Jesus doesn't seem concerned about your stuff? I could keep going, right? I think you get the picture though. There's no shortage of priests waiting to offer you a covenant bargain for their services and the only cost is your eternal soul. Just give us that. We'll give you what you want. Jesus is better, church. Hear it. Jesus is better. His promises are more sure and more real than any sham guarantee of an empty priesthood. As we lean into an Advent season and peer into the manger to see the child born of a virgin, we see the one who came as a priest that we never knew we needed. The priest who was born to be a priest forever like Melchizedek, who went before him. The priest who guarantees a better covenant and a better hope than any this world could ever dream up because he's not of this world. He is the eternal son of the Father who came to us, becoming like us in order to save us, church. This is Jesus, the great high priest who came to be the very hope that you're actually most longing for. If you're not a Christian, this Christmas, you can be through trusting in Jesus by believing in his sufficient work as the great high priest to be all that you need for eternal life. He came and lived perfectly and died in the place of every guilty sinner who places their trust in him. And he guarantees a better covenant for all eternity because he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you're a Christian, you can renew your hope in Christ through looking at his priesthood that will not fail you because it will not end. And you can look to the same sky that once held a star that led wise men to Christ and know that one day that same sky will be split open with the sound of our coming king. Let's renew our hope in that coming day, because we have this better hope and this better covenant guaranteed through our great high priest who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ our Lord. To glory be his name. Let's pray.